0: Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So today is a Friday, January 15th, 2021. Uh, as we record this, the inauguration is coming. And I know i have asked you before about power soups. Mm-hmm. But do you have, like, a favorite pantsuit? It doesn't necessarily have to be yours. It could be, like, a
1: pantsuit of history.
0: Mm.
1: You know what? I do actually have a story. So, in high school, I was in drama. And Mm -hmm. one of the roles I got was from Noises Off, which is a great little play. Um, And we had to choose our own wardrobe. And one of the things, one of the characters that I played... Which was a character within the character because Noise's Office is about a stage in a play. Is uh, she wore wore a power suit or she wears a suit? And I was instructed by my uh, drama teacher go get you a skirt and suit. And I went through and looked through the magazines. And it was at that point that the power suit, the pantsuit, was a pretty big deal and people were wearing it. It was during the era of Bill Clinton and Hillary was in office as the first lady and she donned on those pantsuits. So I guess it became a a fashion thing. So it was around that time when we were trying to find outfits, and that was on all of the magazines. And because I am very self-conscious of my legs, I was like, yes, I want a pantsuit. And I Mm -hmm. had actually an argument with my drama teacher because she did not feel like it was going to be feminine enough, didn't think it was going to work, and she kept saying no, no, no. And I went ahead and bought both the skirt and the uh, pants, and I won because when I put it on, I looked good in my little pantsuit for the whole night, yeah. and she was like, you, "You're right, you're right." She even bought me a candy bar because <laughs> she lost that argument, essentially. But yeah, so <laughs> I fought to put in a pantsuit for a feminine role because that, she thought it wasn't going to be feminine enough, which is always right. the argument, right? So yeah, right. so I fought for that because I thought it made me look better. I guess I was more—I was less self-conscious in it. You were more comfortable. Yeah, I was yeah. less, less what self-conscious. Color was it was it? Black, of course. Yeah, yeah, I went for the straight black with, I think I had a white shirt, pearls, all of that. Mm-hmm. I, I went all in for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. I feel like that was one of my
0: triumphs with the pantsuit. That is that is a triumph. Pantsuit
1: triumph. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear
0: this. And yeah, that's interesting because I remember. Um, I had to buy it. My mom was so into when I was gonna go uh, intern with the European Union. She was like, We've gotta get you some professional outfits. And she was like taking me all these places. And at the time, I did, because I was in, uh, I was young college at the time. And I did, I was sort of grappling with my ideas of feminism and what it, what I thought it meant for me to be a woman. And I did have those hangups about pantsuits. I was like, I like them. But what message right. is it sending? Is it sending that I'm like a man-hating feminist? Right. And I'm like, in this vein of uh, Hillary Clinton, who I really had no no hatred for at the time, but I knew people did. did and People associated it with her. And... Um, but I was also with you where I was like, but I could sit so much. I remember thinking that. Like, I, I can sit and I won't want to worry about flashing someone accidentally. Right. Like, you have
1: so much more mobility. Yeah, I think for me, it was kind yeah. of that I was a self, self-conscious, be more comfortable because I could just walk and do what I needed to in it. And plus, yeah, it was comfortable because I feel like sometimes with the skirts, especially like pencil skirts— You have very little movement. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I I
0: bought some pencil skirts for that whole thing, and I like them, and they're They're cute on me, but they're definitely like a... I'd rather be wearing the pantsuit. The pencil skirt is a rarer occasion. So, yeah, uh, given that we have Kamala Harris, uh, first woman vice president, being inaugurated, and all this discussion about pantsuits and power dressing, Yes. Which I do still find a little silly. And Chuck but, Taylor's, all right. I checked it. Yes, and Chuck it. Which I love that. Oh, oh yeah. By the way, that is this thing that I personally Absolutely. do love. Um, <laughs> we wanted to bring back this classic episode for you on pantsuit power dressing. So please enjoy.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And earlier this week, or if you're listening to this podcast, months or years after it came (laughs) out, the episode right before this one is an interview with Jessica Bennett, who wrote the book, Feminist Fight Club, which is a guide to a sexist workplace. And of course, it addresses office attire, because there are... So many gender politics wrapped up with our workplace dress codes. Um, there's actually another episode that we recorded quite some time ago now about uh, female lawyers, dress codes in particular. Uh, this can be a challenging line for a lot of women, especially if you have a body shape that accentuates your breasts and your butt, that it can be challenging to dress, quote unquote, appropriately for the workplace and get taken seriously. And way back in the day, when women were first trying to make it to a cubicle already, (laughs) pantsuits seemed like one of the only ways to do that. Yeah, it was a
3: way to sort of, (laughs) as inconspicuously as possible, enter the boys
2: club that was the American office, or really any office. And it seems like uh, this presidential election in 2016 is really a, a pantsuit heavy election because you got Hillary Clinton running, and Hillary is famous for now and totally embraces the pantsuit. Oh, yeah, it's part of her brand. If you go on her
3: uh, store on her website, she even has a pantsuit t shirt. The pants sold separately, but it, it's just like a t shirt that looks like one of her. Blazers, it's even
2: got a little Hillary brooch on it. When she first got on Twitter years ago, her uh, bio included pantsuit aficionado. Yeah, her
3: first Instagram photo was from July 4th, and it was her trying to pick
2: between a red, white, or blue pantsuit. And Megan Garber wrote about this over at the Atlantic, because, of course, if there's going to be a pantsuit think piece, it's at the Atlantic. (laughs) Um, But... Hillary Clinton has received, as you well know if you've listened to our episode about her, has received so much scrutiny over her wardrobe ever since she first came into the public eye in Arkansas. And essentially what the American public has told Hillary Clinton for decades now is that we don't like anything she wears, <laughs> you know? It's either trying too hard or it's too frumpy, it's too masculine, and it's too headbandy. I really don't understand all of the anti headband. Too scrunchy. Too scrunchy. Scrunchy gate Although, P.S., uh, I did spot some scrunchies on the subway last week in New York. Dude, mm-hmm.
3: uh, everything comes back in fashion. But yeah, Garber writes about how Hillary's pantsuit is basically an effort to be both defiant, she says. And conciliatory. So I'm defiant in that I am a woman wearing pants, a suit. I'm power dressing. But it's also a way of saying, hey, we don't have to talk about my clothes every single time. Because if I literally wear a pantsuit every time I come out, eventually that headline is going to get real
2: tired. Right. It's like someone uh, thinking they're fresh by writing something about Donald Trump's hair. Right. I can't, it's, it's just the same toupee. We know. So it's not only though the pant and the blazer. Yes, I did do the Stacey London singular pant right there, <laughs> but also Megan Garber notes how the neckline of her blouses have also risen, particularly since 2007 when somehow it became Headline news even talked about on Meet the Press that week that then Senator Hillary Clinton wore something that showed a hint of cleavage. Oh my God, a woman with breasts. It's like the time
3: Condoleezza Rice wore those knee boots. Oh God, I still love those knee boots. Me too. Fabulous outfit. Me too. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, come. On, it's like it's like people will will talk about anything other than policy. I mean, we've all seen the the graphic that is the rainbow of Hillary Clinton in all of her different pantsuits, and I love it. And it's actually the cover image on a friend's uh, Pride Week Facebook invitation. Uh, love it, but Angela Merkel also has her own similar graphic. I've seen, like, ranging from the whitest white to the blackest black in every shade of crimson or plum in between.
2: Well, and speaking of the colors, you had to love the symbolism, too, at the Democratic National Convention when Hillary comes out for her acceptance speech wearing a white Pantsuit. New beginnings. Oh, and also white was the color that suffragists wore. Oh, yeah. It gives me
3: chills just talking about it now. I know. Well, because the suffragist colors were green, white, and violet because G stood for give, W stood
2: for women, and violet stood for vote. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Like but- I know. Progressive women using acronyms, like, come on. <laughs> and colors. And colors. <laughs> and both the gendered and status symbols wrapped up in pantsuits, of course, translates off of the political trail as well. This is something that Samantha Sulzer devoted her entire thesis to in. 2012. Yeah, so Seltzer showed a whole bunch of business people um, pictures
3: of women in eight outfits, ranging from the business suit, the power pantsuit, all the way to um, like a knee skirt with a cowl necked blouse. And far and away, the fitted pantsuit with blazer was uh, viewed as the most powerful, confident, modern respected outfit of all. Um, The second was like pants and a and a and a top or pants and a button up blouse. It was like, okay, yeah, she's professional or whatever. Um, Versus the fitted above the knee skirt with a sleeved neck shirt, which was perceived as the least respected, least conservative, least appropriate, and least professional, which I think is so interesting because part of this whole discussion is like, are you too masculine? Are you too feminine? And all this tells me is that Like there's no winning because, yeah, you know, you wear a pantsuit to a job interview or if you're the boss or whatever. But we have this whole history of whoever it is, a boss or a fashion magazine telling us that something is over, that it's unacceptable or it's it's the lay of the land, the law of the land. You've got to look like this, this one way or another. And so I just think it's funny that this study is like pantsuit with the blazers, the only way to go. When you've had women like Hillary Clinton being
2: slammed for pantsuits forever. And that, Caroline, is why I prefer the office overall,
3: (laughs) because
2: it just confuses people. What would Grace Jones say? Oh, my God. So, yeah,
3: when looking for power suits, you know, first of all, you say pantsuit. I immediately think Hillary Clinton. I can't think of anybody else when I hear power suit. I think the women of the movie Working Girl. But then I think of Grace Jones, 80s phenom who just recently resurfaced in pop culture because she released a memoir. Um, but look for her cover of her album Nightclubbing from the 80s. Like, she is a bad ass, And that is a power suit, if I've ever seen one.
2: No one slays a blaze
3: <laughs> oh, quite
2: like Grace Jones. That's a good way to put it.
3: But, okay, so, do we even have time? I mean, like, you know, we talk about the 80s, working girl, Grace Jones. Do we even have time to go back and cover all of fashion history to talk about the origin of suits? We better make the time. We will make the time, because that's what this whole episode is dedicated to, basically. So,
2: where did suits even come from, though? Well, from uh, sumptuary laws, kind of. So, in 666, old King Charles II in England passes these sumptuary laws, which are essentially regulating the types of food and clothing, even furniture that people of various classes are allowed um, or required to wear or consume. So Charles, old, old Chuck, the second demands that dudes wear waistcoats, trousers and ties like the French. Because, I guess, what, at the time, like, everyone was like, oh, well, you know, do as the French do this. They seem cool. It's like dressing, you know, in high school like the the popular kid so that yeah. you, you can try to,
3: I, you just to be popular. Up, yeah, you just summed up centuries of European history, I think. <laughs> oh, I can hear the letters coming in. But, yeah, Um King Charles's fashion outlook basically evolved into men's modern suits, which, of course then evolved into women's suits eventually. And art historian Anne Hollander, who in 1994 wrote the book Sex in Suits, talks a lot about how women's fashion has followed men's, from the big, the frou-frou, all the makeup and curlers and heels, and the visible effort to look made up, to the modern, streamlined, suited appearance. And I've got... I've got to say, like, I don't know how much of the Sex and Suits book you went through, Kristen. I had to stop because it is written. And I really don't mean this to be insulting. Anne Hollander, if you're listening, I have so much appreciation for your contribution to art history and fashion history. But this book is the text equivalent of someone sitting in an armchair with a brandy in one hand and a cigarette dangling out of a long cigarette holder in the other it's very like and then
2: it's so so a book that might make for a better podcast it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> maybe just its tone and its writing style is very very interesting
3: um but yeah she she talks in her book about how male dress in her opinion has always been essentially more advanced then female dress throughout fashion history intended to lead the way and set the standard to make the aesthetic propositions to which female fashion responded. Uh, she says that men's clothes since the Middle Ages have been more formally interesting, though less innovative and less conservative than women's. And she says that the invention of modern suits is a good example of this
2: trend. Well, and... Another trend along with that, that I think explains why guys have been the fashion trend setters in a lot of ways. Men were wearing hair bows and carrying handbags and wearing high heels before women were. Is because you see women's fashion evolve and skirts start to give way to more fitted clothing and bifurcated garments mm. that would eventually give way to pants. um As we are able to enjoy more mobility. Right. Exactly. So in the 19th century, we start to move around (laughs) a little bit. Finally. We finally stand up from our fainting couch. (laughs) Um, And the evolution, though, doesn't start from the bottom like Drake, but it starts at the top. So European women started wearing tailored jackets with long skirts for outdoor activities like riding, archery, and walking. And, of course, I'm sure that riding was side saddle. Oh, God, yes. Because a stride. Hello? No, you're your uterus. Do you, belong- <laughs> Do you belong on the stage? Or just a common woman <laughs> riding a stride. But,
3: but, I mean, this is kind of the first athleisure, right? Because women were like, they had to wear more fitted you know, things, the blazer originated as sportswear, uh, especially for women. But you've got trendsetters adopting these outfits for everyday wear. So taking those bifurcated garments, taking those more fitted blazers and tops with their button up blouses and their little lady ties. And by 1905, this
2: was the common outfit for women. And one person who embodies this whole aesthetic is a mid-century French novelist named George Sand, who was born Amantine Lucille Aurora Dupin. Yeah, and and George Sand, uh,
3: you know, she not only smoked in public and renamed herself George, well, yeah, Um, but she left her husband, she took many a lover, but all of this was fine. But she wore pants... That was part of her whole persona. It's like that was almost too much for people. Yeah. The lovers. Well, all right. She's French. Right. And and the pants come off anyway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But you put a suit on there and that's just that's crazy talk. Well, women risked getting arrested if they wore pants in public up until World War II. Well, they risked offending people, that's for sure. And this is
3: another thing that Hollander writes about. She says that this was a time, keep in mind, when sexual separateness was very intense. And by virtue of the fact that Sand wore these suits, she became an erotic icon, not just because she put on some pants and a blazer, but because wearing these fitted, tailored clothes... It wasn't covering up her curves. It wasn't disguising her in some baggy suit. Hollander writes that she looked even more feminine in her tailored jacket and trousers. She looked more sexy. Notably, Hollander writes, she did not cut her hair or disguise her full figure. It was not drag with the aim of illusion. She showed herself to be interested in a female erotic Life. She was a woman about town, someone who wanted to get up and move and leave the house and take lovers and smoke cigarettes. Um, And here she was
2: embracing this modern sexuality that was normally reserved for men. Well, and the smoking cigarettes is definitely part of that, too, because um, that was something that was very deviant for women to do. Um, and that's why, you know, flappers and the new woman of the 1920s and 30s was somewhat liberated by smoking and especially smoking in public. We even talked about how... Torches of freedom. Torches of freedom. And we've also talked about how there were classes you could take. Like if today, imagine if you could take a webinar <laughs> to show you how to smoke a cigarette correctly in public. There were classes women would take for that.
3: I mean, whatever gets people to spend more money. But, you know, we talk about sexual fluidity today. We talk about gender norms and dynamics today. But this was a thing in the back of people's minds in the 19th century, even if they didn't have the language for it. Hollander writes that, quote, sartorial borrowings from the other sex displayed an awareness that sexuality is fluid, unaccountable and even uncomfortable, not fixed. Simple and easy. And that's a dangerous concept in a time when you've totally had separate spheres that men and women were expected to
2: adhere to. And it's still dangerous in in many places still today. Now, of course, this kind of cross-dressing was common on stage for, I mean, since Shakespearean times. Um, but if we look at the 1870s, also in Paris, you have actress Sarah Bernhardt, who would gender bend on stage as Hamlet in 1899. Uh, she wore a custom-made trouser suit that she called her boy's clothes. Just so cute. That does sound really cute and adorable. Um, and, you know,
3: we mentioned how that... <laughs> Early athleisure became the trend of the day by 1905. Well, so let's look at this whole suit explosion of the 20th century. Uh, in 1910, the American Ladies Tailors Association created what is known as the suffragette suit. Did it look like Hillary Clinton's white pantsuit at the DNC? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, and along with a blouse and jacket, it had an ankle length. Divided skirt, bifurcated garment that allowed the wearer to take long feminist strides. Yes.
2: (laughs) You take up that space on the sidewalk. Uh, A few years later, we have Coco Chanel, of course, designing her first suit. But it's not a pantsuit. It's a fur-trimmed jacket with a matching long skirt. She wouldn't introduce her signature suit, which is the knee-length skirt and wool jacket, uh, until the early 1920s.
3: Yeah, and what's funny about Chanel... <laughs> So we talked about her a lot in our colorism episode, in our tanning episode, um, because she accidentally made tanning popular or helped popularize it. She also accidentally made pants in general fashionable, even though she's making skirt suits. Um, she was at the beach and for modesty's sake, rather than changing into a bathing costume, she donned some pants. Uh, and, <laughs> Everybody was like, Oh, it's great. I love it. I love what you're doing, baby. I want to do it too. But later she was quoted as saying she was actually sad to see so many women at dinners wearing pants.
2: Oh, come on, Coco.
3: I know. She's not she's not
2: quite as progressive as we all would like to imagine she was. <laughs> Need not by any stretch. <laughs> but then in 1931, you have designer Marcel Rochas. Introducing the first wide-shouldered suits with pants. (laughs) These were gray wool trousers for women. Um, and he said that his inspiration was Balinese dancers costumes. So do we have a little cultural appropriation happening? I think
3: we do. And I mean that echoes Paul uh, French designer Paul Poiret, who's sort of credited with freeing women from their corsets with his tunic style outfits over harem pants. So you've got a lot of, well, in this case, I guess two male French designers appropriating. Silhouettes
2: and designs from
3: the
1: East.
2: Well, and art historians can let us know whether this, um, is probably a product of Orientalism happening at the time and exoticism that you see in art and interior design and also in things apparently like old-school power suits.
3: (laughs) I know! I know, and so following the trend in 1939, Italian designer Elsa Schiaparelli designs a wool pantsuit with a brown wool jacket that had four large buttons down the front and a pair of single pleat cuffed slacks. Sounds very basic, but this stuff was pretty cutting edge, pretty dangerous. And not, as you can imagine, not everyone was very excited. Uh, that same year in 1939, Vogue fashion editor Elizabeth Penrose spoke out against women who would wear pants outside the workplace, whether it was to a restaurant or even at home. God forbid you wear comfortable pants at home, Uh, saying that those women who, quote, pad around in hairy sweaters and flannel bags on duty and off are letting themselves go and other people down. Slackers in slacks.
2: Damn, Vogue. Liz. So judgy. I mean, what is Liz relaxing? I know. You know? Just, she just, just imagine her alone in her house, like, looking around to see if, you know, everyone's gone, no one can see her. And she, like, picks up a pair of stretchy pants <laughs> and puts them on. Just I know, the right? delight that would wash over her. She just has a, a bundling sack that she puts on. <laughs> So, of course, we have to talk about the silver screen and Marlena Dietrich because, uh, she really helped popularize suits for everyday women because this is when we start to see the rise of celebrity and tabloid culture and the very real relationship today between celebrity fashions and what regular Janes are wearing. So in the 1930s, old Marlena, who, by the way, if you listen to our episode on uh, the fetishizing of East Asian women, Marlena Dietrich was buds with the super cool anime Wong. Google her if you're not familiar with who she is. So Dietrich, who was just a progressive gal in general, She sports a tux and a top hat, looks flawless in it, in both the films Morocco and Blonde Venus. And she was also a pioneer of pantsuits as streetwear. Because why not? You're already a badass
3: trailblazer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and hello, Catherine Hepburn. I mean, on screen and off, she was all about the pants. Uh, In 1942, the film Woman of the Year, she donned a fabulous pantsuit to play... A powerful uh, and kind of single minded lady journalist and in one thousand nine hundred and forty nine it 's funny picture goer magazine. Uh, called her style uh, kind of a smooth publicity move. They said that that slack suit, people weren't calling them pantsuits yet, because I think pants still referred to underwear. Oh. Um, the slack suit paid for itself several times over for Catherine Hepburn got special mention in hundreds of different publications. If she'd worn a dress, her name would merely have been listed among the 55 other top stars. So, like... Yeah, she's great. She's talented. She would have been
2: talked about no matter what, but those pants. So that was the 1949 equivalent of Lady Gaga's meat dress. (laughs) Like she might have well just been. Wearing meat. Um, But speaking of Catherine Hepburn's love of pants and how central they really were to her life, they were not a publicity stunt. Um, There is a great line in her autobiography where she's talking about working with Dorothy Arzner, who was the only female f- director in Hollywood for pretty much all of the 1930s. And she was a total boss babe of pants and also just a total boss babe in general. And really, the only mention Hepburn makes of her uh, is that she met Arsner, who, of course, was wearing pants. And she was like, yeah, she wore pants. We got along well. <laughs> and, and that kind of just summed it up, you know?
3: Yeah, because pants meant something different back then. Yeah. They
2: signified that, hey, you and I are both going against the mainstream. It's like spotting. Another lady on a crowded subway wearing a futurist female sweatshirt. I was just going to say, that. you know,
3: that's exactly what it's like. Yeah. And and, you know, if we're still talking about cinema um, in the late 50s and early 60s, you don't necessarily see as many pantsuits making waves. But you do see plenty of women in power suits on screen, uh, although they were definitely more skirt suits. Uh, costume designer Edith Head, who's massively famous in fashion history, uh, created a whole slew of sophisticated suits for Kim Novak in Vertigo and Tippi Hedren in Birds. Um, the suit she created for Tippy Hedren in Birds, it was the same suit, but like six different versions and each version had more damage from the birds over
2: the course of the movie. Well, and that scene of watching her in that form-fitting, like, pencil skirt suit, having to run from the birds. Spoiler alert. Um, I mean, it ma- it heightens the tension so much because, you know, her mobility is limited. Yeah, she could have used a bifurcated garment. She really could have.
3: Yeah, I mean, that was a power suit, but it needed to be a little more powerful. Exactly. To allow her to run. Um, and we're going to get into... The swing in 60s and, and power suits of second wave feminism when we come right back from a quick break.
2: So as we talk about in detail in our podcast, all about the long march toward women wearing pants world war 1 and 2 were really the tipping points uh world war 1 initially got us wearing pants when like as happened later on with world war 2 women stepped in to fill in when the guys went off to war but of course once it ended you take the pants off and put the skirt back on But then, once this happens all over again in World War II, it really starts to stick, probably thanks to celeb role models like Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, it's kind of a perfect storm of pop culture and just real life.
3: Um, So in the 1940s, around World War II, you've got 37% of American women now in the workforce, many many of those women filling those masculine industrial roles. So they had to wear pants, I mean, for safety and efficiency. And those pants often belonged to their husbands. Husbands who had gone off to war, so they would, you know, nip and tuck the pants at the waist or whatever. Um, but at the same time, separate from this industrial take on fashion and having to go into the workplace and wear pants for safety, you also have a whole other group of women who are power
2: dressing at the same time. And these are the Pachukas. So in the 1930s and 40s, um, as many people might not be aware of, there were anywhere from half a million to two million people of Mexican descent who were forcibly deported from the U S. So anti Chicano, anti Mexican sentiment is raging at the time. And you're seeing a lot of violence directed toward them, particularly in California, where you have higher populations there. So Within this, this leads to what are called the zoot suit riots. Um, because zoot suits, those big kind of exaggerated suits were worn by a lot of the guys in these communities, a lot of Chicano guys, a lot of, uh, Mexican dudes. And the zoot suits started to symbolize like their deviance. Oh, these, they're just like troublemakers. We don't want them around. And the pachucas were the women that we never hear about. They were the women who hung out with their zoot suit guy friends also wearing transgressive clothes, particularly pants. Yeah,
3: so I love this element of uh, Chicana history that I had not been aware of before. Um, But these women, they would frequently be wearing those like super-structured, big-shouldered jackets, as well, the buttoned. Um Sometimes they would wear them over huge flowing pants. Sometimes they'd wear them over skirts. But they totally freaked people out just as much because they were defying gender roles and American patriotic conformity around World War II. Um, and so I, white Americans just, like, didn't
2: know <laughs> Didn't know what to think about this group of people. Oh, but they slut shamed them. Oh my gosh. They slut shamed them. Um, and there was also a piece recently over at Broadly linking, uh, modern day, the modern day Chola subculture to the pachucas, mm-hmm. um, because the pachucas also had sort of a rockabilly look. Yeah. Well, I mean, if
3: you Google, like, literally, when you Google pachucas, the first thing that comes up is not some fascinating history of this subculture. It's like pachucaware.com, you know, like, you can buy the same thing with like, you know, mod cloth has a lot of those like 40s and 50s style dresses. It's the same kind of thing that that, it It fits in with the rockabilly culture that's still alive and well, very easily,
2: yeah, so I mean, and this is one way in which like fashion is really important. It does matter because especially for women and for you know gender nonconforming people, clothing and in this case pants are a form of protest, and immediately move
3: into <laughs> not protest at all, going to formal dinners
2: unless you enjoy. Class privileges. Ooh,
3: yeah. Very good point. Um, yeah. Cause if you're, if you're wearing a certain outfit that someone deems inappropriate and you're a person of color or someone of a lower class, you might get thrown out. But if you're a white lady, I mean, and we see this with oh, cornrows, afros, braids, hair color, piercings, tattoos, the whole thing. Like if you are a white lady, You tend to be called like edgy, cool at the forefront of fashion. But if you're a person of color, you're somehow trashy and inappropriate.
2: And especially at this point too, getting into the 1960s, when pants were still kind of daring for the everyday woman to wear. Even if you were white, you still needed to be rich in order to really pull it off.
3: Yeah, so in 1964, here comes another French designer, André Courage, introducing slim, minimalist pantsuits for women uh, for both day and evening wear. Um Until then, women had basically worn pants for just informal things, unless you're Marlena Dietrich and you're wearing a tux and a top hat,
2: you know. Now, isn't it interesting how uh, we have up until this point, really aside from Coco Chanel, Mostly men as both the gatekeepers of our fashion, but also to the slut shamers of our fashion. That's how that works. Yeah,
3: that's how that works. We we want to see you looking a certain
2: way because that's
3: how you're most attractive. But when you look a certain way and you're attractive, then you're going to be slut shamed. Yeah, I know it's a it's a catch twenty two snake eating itself type of situation. Um, two years later, in 1966, Yves Saint Laurent debuted his infamous le smoking suit, uh, which is considered the first tuxedo specifically made for women, and it consisted of you know tux parts, a dinner jacket, trousers with a satin stripe down the side, a white shirt, black bow tie, and a cummerbund because you've
2: got to you've got to complete that look. And Marjorie Joal, who is a women's study professor at Roosevelt University, told Vice that this was, quote, just top to bottom sex. Yeah. And so
3: therefore, <laughs> in 1969, you have New York City socialite Nan Kempner getting turned away from this fancy restaurant because she was wearing le smoking uh, and this was a killer move. This is also coming from that Vice article. Um, they write that after being denied service, Kempner, rather than putting up with being turned away, because nobody turns away Nan Kempner, she just took her pants off, walked back in the restaurant wearing her jacket as a mini dress, and she was let in. Because that's for a white, rich, socialite in New York City. That is deemed okay. That's deemed appropriate. And the manager responded to this whole hubbub by saying pants do not belong in a restaurant any more than swimming suits. We will continue our policy.
2: Boss move, Nan. I mean, I don't if someone kicked you out of a restaurant for wearing pants. My first thought would not to be to take them off. I mean,
3: I would think it spitefully.
2: I'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to go home, put on my stretchy pants, call Uber Eats. It's been a day. It has been a day. But we also have to shout out, in 1969, conservative Illinois Representative Charlotte T. Reed, who became the first woman to wear pants on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. And boy, did she get a lot of attention, specifically from the boys. Uh, the Washington Post reported on this, of course, um, and noted how male members of Congress flocked to catch a glimpse of uh, these revolutionary pants, which are really more kind of like bell bottoms. And thankfully, though, uh, none of the politicians that the Post interviewed seemed too scandalized by this. But Representative Reed really played off the whole thing. She, I don't think, I think she was kind of flustered that it became news because the only reason she wore them was, uh, since it was the final day of the congressional session before Christmas break. So kind of like how, at least at my high school, everyone would wear pajamas on the last day of finals. (laughs) So she was like, this is no big deal. I'm really not trying to make waves here. And of course she never wore this pantsuit again because Speaking to the Washington Post, Reed said, I am really quite serious about my service in Congress, and I wouldn't want to do anything that seemed facetious. I were following you. But then, neither would I want to do anything to take away from the femininity of the women in the house, even though I think pants are feminine-looking. Now, come on. Charlotte! Huh. It was like... (laughs) It's funny. It's like the accidental trailblazer being like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. I was just uh, I was just dressed down. (laughs) I'm still I'm still a woman. Yeah,
3: everybody was
2: confused. Like, oh, God, where did your gender go? Well, and also, I mean, she's wearing not even a blazer over this. It's like a, a double breasted jacket that comes down mid thigh. So it's very conservative. Yeah. um, and, and again, I mean, it's not like people were scandalized that she was showing too much of her figure, um, but it was more of a gender norm violation. How dare she? Indeed.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, but you've also got to keep in mind the context of the Times, right? I mean, people who might not have otherwise thought it was... Scandalous or gender bendy, um, might have been observing pop culture and social context and what's going on at the time, which is hello, second wave feminism. And more and more women are sporting pants because, hello, they're more
2: comfortable. They let me ride a bicycle away from you. And things like Title IX passed in 1972. Gives you more, uh, more oomph if, say, your school does not allow you to wear pants. You can be like, no, uh, no, 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 no. You gotta let me wear some pants.
3: Yeah. Title IX. Who knew? It's about more than sports. It's about pants. <laughs> it's about pants. Um, and you start in the 70s seeing the office pantsuit as we think of it now, worn by these professional women who were entering these male dominated spaces. For example, a 26 year old woman by the name of Hillary Rodham, uh, who was photographed at Nixon's 1974 impeachment hearing, wearing a smart pantsuit and looking very capable, if I do say so myself.
2: And it's notable that you said that she looked capable in that pantsuit, Caroline, because that's something that Shira Tarrant, who's a professor and author of the book Fashion Talks, Undressing the Power of Style, echoed. To vice, basically saying that, like, at that time, if you wanted to be taken seriously as a businesswoman or, say, as an up and coming lawyer like Hillary Rodham, then you were expected to wear a pantsuit, but you were going to be criticized for trying to emulate men because it was so derivative of menswear. So, I mean, <laughs> this is when we get into the whole issue that we still have today in terms of how masculine is the professional normative. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we're trending away from that, but I mean, they were the first ones in there. So they've set how the professional language sounds, what professional looks like. But this makes me want to tear my hair out. Her quote
3: sums up so much that we're trying to get at in this episode, which is like, yeah, you've got to wear it to, to look professional and like you belong, but don't wear it because you look too much like a man and you're
2: transgressing gender norms. They might respect you as a business person, but not, Trust you as a woman.
3: Yeah, I I don't know. But jumping onto this criticism train in 1977, you've got John T. Malloy, who writes in his book, The Woman's Dress for Success book, that in most offices, the pantsuit is a failure outfit. If you have to deal with men, even as subordinates, you are putting on trouble. If you want to be a liberated woman, (laughs) burn your polyester pantsuit not your bra. The polyester pantsuit, he says, will keep you in corporate serfdom while your bra can help
2: you up as well as hold you up. What in the world? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have seen this book. Um I actually have a copy of the Men's Dress for Success book on uh, a coffee table at home. It is less sexist than the woman's Dress for Success book. And really, all I have to say to John T. Malloy is... Uh, terrible advice to burn a polyester suit because those flames are going to just get out of control. Out
3: of control, yeah. So his advice for women, um, if you want to be taken seriously, yeah, emulate men with a tailored blue or gray wool suit, but make sure it's with a skirt that covers the knee. Do not wear pants, you slutty slut bags.
2: So maybe uh taking a cue from John T. Malloy and realizing this... Catch 22 pantsuit situation that, uh, women were facing trailblazing into the workplace, particularly in the 1980s. You see the, the rise of kind of the working girl uniform of still the skirt suit, but you're gonna have real broad <laughs> shoulder pads to,
3: uh, <laughs> To symbolize some power. Yeah, one can be a bookshelf on one side. Keep your snacks. Yeah. On the other. You got like power on top, feminine
2: on the bottom. That's right. Kind of like a clothing mullet or something. Yeah, don't don't worry. My ankles are still here and visible, <laughs> which would have gotten you slut shamed in the Victorian era. Come on.
3: For sure. There's no winning. Um, so between 1980 and 1987, driven by, in particular, Power suit purchases, because keep in mind, shoulder pads had started to come into vogue back in the late 70s, back when Malloy was telling us to create a frickin' forest fire with our business suits. Sales of women's suits rose by nearly 6 million units, which equated to about a $600 million gain for the fashion industry. So suddenly, (laughs) the fashion industry is like, oh, wait. We can, we can convince women to wear suits and make money because of it because it's an untapped resource. Marketing! Get marketing on the phone. And I mean, you've got more women going into the office. This, this power suit trend just follows the women to the office because from 1972 to 85, the share of women in the workforce grew to nearly half. And their share of management roles rose from 20% to 36%. So you've got more women in the workplace, more women in charge. It's a masculine-dominated environment. You've got to look like men to succeed, apparently, which means a power suit and a pussy bow blouse and just the right amount of teasing of the hair, honestly. And and maybe a kitten heel.
2: Yeah. A, A tasteful kitten heel. And you also have fashion designers like Armani that are promoting this particular silhouette. So you've got the broad shoulder pads, those (laughs) oversized lapels, um, which I would just fill up with flair, you know, (laughs) all my feminist (laughs) flair. Uh, and women would wear sometimes, yes, those pussy bow blouses with the, you know, the floppy bow on them, but also just lady ties. Um, and all of this creates this, Sharper silhouette that is very masculine, sort of disguising the hourglass figure in order to, I mean, I mean, it's really, it's literal power dressing. You're really trying to put on the authority that you want to project and really camouflaging any femininity that could potentially sap your power.
3: Shaking our heads. Um, and then in 1981, that's when we get Grace Jones's Nightclubbing clubbing uh, that features her on the cover in this frickin suit cut down to here, shoulders out to there and a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And again, like such power dressing. And it's just in the water because from 1981 to 89, you've got the TV show Dynasty, which features a lot of rich white women in a lot of big old power suits. And they even launched a suit line based on this show. And costumer Nolan Miller said that the style demonstrated the imposing strength of an American woman. Quote, when she walks down the hall, you may not know who she is, but you know she's rich and you know you better get out of the way.
2: What a different tune than the Pachuca's, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but these are white rich women exactly. we're talking about. Um, but the Dynasty reference also reminded me of Designing Women, where, I mean, A, all the women were typically in, well, there were a lot of pussy bow blouses, um, a lot of big lapels, and uh, Julia Sugarbaker. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, she was always wearing some kind of suit. A lot of times... With a skirt, yeah, but, but nonetheless, it was that wide silhouette that with let you know. Yes, with the buttons that let you know, Julia meant business. Yeah, oh, she did. Ah, oh, there's
3: nothing I love more than a Julia Sugarbaker monologue. Um, But yeah, so this this leads us up to the 90s. You've got, you know, in the wake of Grace Jones being such a trendsetter, you have Madonna sporting a huge shouldered pinstripe suit over lingerie for her blonde ambition tour. But then you've got Vogue again coming into the picture telling us that power dressing is over. Women, it's the 90s. (laughs) You've been in the workplace for a minute now. So we've got casual Fridays. You can relax. And Neiman Marcus stops selling suits. And Donna Karen starts making softer corporate lady options that still, regardless of the fact that it is no longer a broad-shouldered suit, manages to telegraph money, 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 because you might be wearing pants or you might be wearing a pencil skirt, but your sweater or your top might be cashmere. The skirt might be leather or suede. You might be wearing reptile skin shoes. So even if you're not looking like Grace Jones... You're still like, look at how much money I have in my power dressing. So what's
2: happening, though, in the cultural background to all of this is also the conservative backlash to second wave feminism Mm -hmm. and the rise of the moral majority. So I would imagine that part of that softening is an extension of that.
3: Oh, yeah, because, yeah, the political and the personal constantly intertwined and reflecting each other.
2: You know, Phyllis Schlafly didn't want women wearing power suits. Oh, God, no. So uh, (laughs) someone who is way cooler than Phyllis Schlafly was, is uh, Barbara Mikulski in 1993. First of all. She knew she was a novelty. McCulsey was the first Democratic woman elected to Senate in her own right, meaning that she wasn't taking over a husband's seat uh, if he passed away. And she also recognized that what women wore was a big deal. I mean, how could she not as a politician? But in 93, she's in D.C. It is cold. A winter storm is on its way. And she doesn't want to be freezing and uncomfortable in a meeting she has to attend. But women aren't allowed to wear pants in Congress.
3: Yeah. So she helps develop this amazing plan, this pant plot uh, to along with a fellow senator and female staffers. She gets them all together and she's like, ladies, we're wearing pants. And it's kind of the same mentality of like the day before Christmas thing, because it's like it's a storm, it's toward the end of the session. But she's like, we can't, how can you expect us to wear skirts and heels out in this mess? And so she develops this plot, but she has to alert hyper traditional Senator Robert Byrd to her plan. The Senate parliamentarian has to check the rules to make sure it's okay. And Bird, once he's alerted to the fact that these women folk are going to traipse in wearing pants, he doesn't even dignify their plan with like a, oh, gosh, he just nods that like, all right, let the women in. And so Mikulski said, the day I walked on the Senate floor in slacks, I became the first woman ever to do so. You would have thought that I was walking on the moon. Well, and what a different tone she has than
2: Representative Reed. Exactly.
3: In 69. Yeah, she planned to do this. She knew what she was doing. She was like, this is ridiculous. This winter storm seems like it was the last, you know, straw that broke the camel's back of like, guys, this is insane. We should be able to wear pants.
2: Why does it take things like natural disasters for... (laughs) For women to just be allowed to wear pants.
3: Well, maybe she was inspired by Dana Scully.
2: Oh, do tell. <laughs> That's my favorite transition of this podcast ever.
3: Well, at 93, The X-Files debuts and nerd girls everywhere. Back then, right now, I'm grinning because I agree. Worshipped at the altar of Dana Scully. And of course, that's not to ignore obvious other business fashion pioneers like Murphy Brown, Allie McBeal and Samantha Jones. But come on, Scully, like it's amazing to go back and watch this fashion time capsule. Scully at the beginning of the show is wearing these crazy, <laughs> these crazy suits, these huge like talking heads blazers, but they're like plaid and they're all different colors. She's got like a double breasted giant lapel powder blue one that she wears at one point. And over the course of the show, it evolves into the slimmer cut, more traditional, like you clearly went to J. Crew or Banana Republic or something and bought a trim suit. Um, And that's where it basically stayed. Dana Scully wearing the you know, the FBI issue black suit with a white button up
2: shirt and a whole John T. Malloy of the Women Dress for Success book was none too pleased <laughs> about all of these women on on the television wearing their suits and having babies out of wedlock. So he releases a new version of his book uh, really dragging women's pantsuits. He said, wear pants only if you need them to look like a member of the team or to perform tasks that require them. But he did admit that the suit, quote, made a resurgence when Hillary Clinton became, quote, the first professional career woman to become the first lady, which I'm confused by because it seems like the only fashion press Hillary received was, more in the vein of what not to wear. Right. Yeah, that's why I was really surprised that he was like, "Eh, well, okay.
3: Maybe he just was looking at that as justification of why more women
2: were donning suits. I'm not sure. Or maybe, again, he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's (laughs) trying to set polyester suit fires all (laughs) over the place. (laughs) He doesn't
3: understand science. He really doesn't. But he does name, supposedly, what, the five suitable Suits for women are, which I just have a lot of fun because he calls them everything from the traditional skirted, which imitates, you know, men's colors and styles. But, you know, that jacket, it might not have lapels if you get crazy. The aggressive feminine suit. These are not my words. These are his words. The aggressive feminine suit, which comes in strong colors like red or bold patterns, like, I don't know, maybe a houndstooth. The stylish professional. So your jacket is designed to be worn without a blouse. So like it's one big button up fancy jacket instead of a blouse. The soft feminine suit, which is a pastel. Maybe it has some lacy details. And then there's the conservative feminine, which has a more conservative cut and color. Uh, but that being said, the color is still one that would only be found on a woman's suit, perhaps a dark plum or some type of mahogany. And it just telegraphs that message of I am both powerful and
2: feminine in my plum. I'm trying to categorize from this the first suit I ever bought myself, which did come uh, from the Reputable clothier, Target, <laughs> and it was a skirt suit. I'm going to say it was uh, more of a traditional skirted suit. Uh, it wasn't stylish, professional, because certainly the jacket was not designed <laughs> to be worn without a blouse. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it it was dark gray with uh, subtle pinstripes and a pencil skirt, and I I bought it for like interviewing for internships and things like that. And I loved wearing it. I mean, you know, Target. Target uh, can sell you some good clothes. And especially at the time in college, I was like this this is quite a splurge. And um and I and I liked it, but certainly never thought <laughs> about all of this, all of the uh politics that were in my in my very cheap suit.
3: Oh yeah, no I um when I graduated college my mother took me to J Crew and bought me two suits which was not cheap. One was solid black but the pants and the skirt, one was like it had it had that tone on tone black pinstripe pants and skirt and I just remember like evolving past the need to wear them and was so grateful. Oh yeah. Cuz like yeah, I mean you can feel powerful in a power suit for sure, but that that ain't my style. Yeah. I'm more of like, a, if I've got a dress for work, I'm much more of just like the slacks and whatever top, typically a cardigan. But I'm even past that and I basically wear a t-shirt and jeans every day now. <laughs>
2: Caroline just comes in in a sports bra. <laughs> and literally nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I do enjoy a good blazer. Yeah. If uh, I've got something where I need to step it up a little bit. Uh, you know, it makes me feel it makes me feel a little more put together. It does tie the outfit together. But uh apparently I'm kind of behind the times or maybe we've circled back around to it because in 2012, the Wall Street Journal declared the power suit dead.
3: Yeah. I mean, again, I just and they're like, oh, you, again, you don't have to wear the, the power suit. Um You can embrace your feminine elements of, of you know, whatever. We don't have to be militant in our office apparel anymore. Are feminine, is
2: feminine elements a euphemism for, like, vagina? <laughs> Quit showing your vagina around the office. Everyone can see your feminine elements. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, but then, you know, just to show you how ridiculous a lot of this conversation is uh, around, like, fashion magazines and what's in and what's out, just three years later in 2015... Vogue checks out the suit that Rihanna wore to the Grammys and is like, oh, my God, the power pants suit is back, y'all. And it's like, God, guys, can we just accept that people are going to wear whatever they want to wear and it doesn't have to be in or out. But then I guess there wouldn't be a fashion industry to make money off of.
2: Well, and I got to say, I am looking at Rihanna's Grammy suit right now. And of course, she looks flawless because she always does. But it's not necessarily groundbreaking. I mean it's a double breasted suit with what looks like a, a satin sheen lapel. It's not terribly well fitting, and it's just a solid, like really dark blue black. But one of the writers
3: that we were reading talking about this Rihanna suit that brought power dressing back, I guess. I have no idea. Um what she wrote harkens back to Anne Hollander's piece about the suit is sex. You know, the suit is gender swapping, sex swapping. It's borrowing something. Maybe you picked it up off your lover's floor and threw it on to go to the Grammys. It's just suggestive of, um, you know, I'm transgressing something.
2: Well, and this is the first time we're seeing a woman of color bringing the suit Ah. potentially into Vogue.
3: Yeah, and I mean... And, and, and exactly speaking of women of color, it's, it's incredible to watch the fashion conversation evolve alongside more inclusive conversations, you know, talking about queer women and particularly queer women of, women of color. There was a great interview in the New York Times with fashion bloggers Daniel Cooper and Sarah Geffrard of She's a Gent and a Dapper Chick who both appreciate a masculine, well-tailored women's wear suit. They were like, we're here, we're queer, we love suits, we don't need to be men. We just want to wear what fits and feels good to us. And I mean, that's what so much of this fashion conversation has been. Yeah, it's about transgressing norms and boundaries and being a trailblazer. But for a lot of women, it's like, this is what I feel like myself in. And uh, Cooper and Geffrard both talked about how Wearing a well-fitting suit, especially as a queer woman of color, can be empowering. Um, honestly, regardless of your sexual orientation, Geffrard said that when I wear a suit, I feel like I can do things I would not otherwise do. I'm a very shy person, but if I'm in a suit, I feel very confident. I feel like I can talk to whoever. Otherwise, I would walk in and feel sort of small. And she pointed out that switching from baggier clothes to a well-fitting suit ended up freeing her from a lot of racist stereotyping that she experienced when she'd walk into a store. She said, I used to wear more of that urban streetwear and I would get certain looks that I didn't really like. I would go into a store and someone would follow me. When I started dressing the way I do now, I don't get that anymore.
2: So there's still a lot of class happening in our suits, understandably, because suits are expensive. Yeah. Um, Cooper Oh, from she's a gent says we're in an era when men and women wear everything. It doesn't really matter if you're gay or straight. And for us, it's really about showing young women that they can wear whatever they want. And this reminds me that in the past couple of years, I've seen so many startups focusing on bespoke suits for women mm-hmm. whether we're talking about more of just a standard woman going to the workplace who wants a, a decent suit and doesn't necessarily want to buy something from j crew all the way to a lot of uh, gender queer people who are you know really making a space in this side of the the fashion industry yeah so I
3: mean who knew the politics? All of this stuff wrapped up in a suit. Uh, answer
2: Hillary Clinton.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, bringing it full circle. She for sure knows. She's gotta know. I mean, every time she puts on an outfit that she's, she's telegraphing some message to someone, people are gonna, you know, say anything that they can about the color, the cut, whatever it is about her clothes. Oh,
2: and at the, uh, one of the Democratic, debates when she wore that golden mandarin collared love top. Yeah, you loved it. But God, people wouldn't stop talking about it. Well, people are ridiculous. People are ridiculous. But then again, I was live tweeting about Michelle Obama's fabulous uh, tangerine dress at the State of the Union address. So perhaps I'm part of the problem.
3: (laughs) Well, but there's a difference between I appreciate what someone's wearing and I'm not going to listen to what this person is saying because I can't stand what she's wearing.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So now we want to stop talking and listen to you, dear listeners. Uh, what do you think about the politics of the pantsuit? Let us know your thoughts. Mom stuff at howstuffworks.com. And for fellows listening, do you ever feel sort of um chained to the pantsuit where you would appreciate being able to wear um, softer styles but you feel like it's more of a requirement that you have to put on this standard uniform of sorts we want to know what all we all think momstuff at howstuffworks.com again is our email address you can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now All right. I have a letter here from Aldo
3: in response to our janitors episode. And Aldo says, thank you for covering the topic about janitors. My mother and I are both janitors in the Los Angeles area. She cleans the offices while I clean the bathrooms in another building. As a child, I would attend the union meetings and protest with my mother. Now, as an adult working as a part-time janitor, I'm able to experience the hard work my mother encounters for the past 20 something years. I appreciate the hard work she's done for my family. I'd like to break the stereotype of the uneducated janitor. I and many janitors I know attend school in the morning and work at night. I received my associates of arts degree in sociology, and I'm currently a junior at a four year university working on my BA in child and adolescent development. I also intern for a nonprofit organization, educating children in low income neighborhoods on how to be better readers. Thank you for shedding light on our jobs. Now, excuse me. I need to go back and sparkle up them floors. (laughs) Although, I love the letter. Thank you so much. And I love that you and your mom share this
2: life experience and that she brought you to union meetings. So thanks for writing in. Rad mom alert. So I have a letter here from Alex, also prompted by our Justice for Janitors episode. And Alex writes... In summer 2011, my office team went on a summer outing that included a picnic. My supervisor, who brought her cooler and some supplies, asked me to help her bring them up to her apartment when we got back because she lived on a narrow street in Greenwich Village where the car wouldn't really stop and we had to get everything up in one trip. When we got to her apartment, she let me in and said that I could put the stuff down anywhere. There were two Latina women in there, both in their 50s. One was cleaning the kitchen, and the other was sitting in the living room going through a large stack of papers. Both were wearing total scrub-out clothes, tank tops, old t-shirts, shorts, etc. I put the containers down, and the woman in the chair said, You must be Alex. I've heard such nice things about you. I was confused because I had no idea who this woman was. I assumed she was a cleaning lady, presumably because someone else was also there cleaning and because she was dressed like I am when I clean my apartment. The fact that she was older and Latina also didn't help uncloud my unconscious bias either. As I was reaching out to shake her hand, it hit me why my boss's cleaning lady had privileged knowledge about how great I am. She was, in fact, not a maid, but Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor... Oh my God. Caroline is <laughs> cringing. I know, this like letter is just stunning. Sonia Sotomayor, who owned the apartment. She and my boss had been friends for decades, and when my boss decided she wanted to relocate from L.A. to New York, Sonia graciously let her move in with her because she'd been in D.C. most of the time anyway. I knew all of this already, but just didn't put... Five and four together quickly enough. Maybe I assumed she wore the black robe 24-7. Who knows? I still feel bad for automatically thinking that an older Puerto Rican woman must have been, quote unquote, the help. But I'm happy I was able to catch myself before saying something stupid in front of one of the people who would later go on to vote for my equal right to marriage. Anyway, that's my story about how I almost made a horrible gaffe in front of one of the most powerful women in the country, I've been listening to Cementies since maybe 2009 and 10, and I still love it. I like to save a few episodes and then take a long walk and listen to them, and it's like I'm just hanging out with my pals. And Alex says, P.S., the other woman there was also not a maid, but another one of their friends who was just hanging out. I'd love to have any of my friends hang out and clean my kitchen, but that's neither here nor there.
3: Whoa. Right? Whoa. Yeah. Oh, wow. What an amazing way to outroot your inherent biases. Right? (laughs) Have it be a Supreme Court justice. Oh, my God.
2: Also, uh, there is a terrific conversation with uh, Justice Sotomayor on death, sex, and money that you should listen to if you haven't. Also, this is just a fabulous podcast. So tune in. And also, folks, if you have letters to send our way, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about power suits, head over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.